Hello and welcome to an Alineals bonus episode. Uh, on this one, we've got me, your host Seth. You got me, the other host Smith. You got me, the other host with the voice that makes you moist. Yes, Marcus. And a special guest. You've heard him before. You know him. You love him. He is. Oh, uh, m- me, Ben. Ben is here. <laughs> Yay! So we have, on this episode, we have the full creative team. We have the suave, debonair, handsome host, me. We have the other host, Smith. Uh, we have the host slash artist, Marcus. Ooh. And we have our theme song creator, Ben, all in one place. So this is the whole, this is basically the whole Millennials team all in one. <laughs> and I know what you guys are wondering. Well, you're not wondering this because you've seen the, the title on your podcast player. But what we're here to do is we're here to review the ninth movie by uh, American auteur Quentin Tarantino called Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, there you um, go. I had to use the ellipsis because it's in the movie. You Well, you put it in the wrong place. So credit for trying. I thought it was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Nope. It's after the end. It's after the end. Okay. Well, that's yeah. dumb. He should change the title. Sorry, Quentin. But Fair enough. That's bad. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's the newest movie by a director who's you know very very popular, and we all saw it and we have thoughts about it. It's a very interesting movie, and yeah, we're gonna get started. So the as far as the the gist of the plot, the movie is two hours and forty seven minutes. Um, so it is a little bit of a long movie. Um, I saw it with a friend. My, my friend is used to seeing movies in uh, Pakistan. That's where he's from. And movies there are pretty long anyway, but all movies have an intermission. So when he found out that this movie didn't have an intermission, he was freaked out. He was like, what? <laughs> this movie's so long. I was like, yeah, that's just how it, how it is. That's how movies um, are now. That's how movies are, especially Quentin Tarantino. Movies. Oh, yeah. So, um, but yeah, this movie basically takes place at the, uh, the end of the 60s in uh, Hollywood, as the title would uh-huh. You know, make you think about it. And first of all, let's just go around. How how did how did when did everyone see this movie? I saw it, I saw it twice. I saw it last Tuesday at a ten o'clock showing where I was falling asleep in the theater, so I had to go see it again. I saw it again on a Saturday in IMAX, which is awesome. That was ten a.m. Right? Yeah, I saw that one at ten a.m. So it was much different. Mm-hmm. Uh, how about you guys? When did everybody see this? Uh, I I saw it well, last Saturday. Okay. I saw it yesterday. Yeah, Marcus watched it from a goddamn cell phone recording. I mean, <laughs> you're not far off. <laughs> ben? Yeah, uh, I saw it opening night, the Thursday night it came out. Woo-hoo. Look at, <laughs> damn. look at big fancy boy. Yeah, yeah. look at big hog. <laughs> yeah, me with my fancy AMC A-list. <laughs> oh, wow. This man that. pays monthly for his movies. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah. As you revise my heart of statement where I said the all folks who have better rubes. Oh wow. You think <laughs> you think people are rubes? I mean, if you if you actually go to the movies as much as Ben does, it is a great way to save money. It, it really is, honestly. Because Ben sees about seven movies a week. <laughs> which means he's seen yeah. about six Tiffany Haddishes in the past day or two. <laughs> I'm so tired of her. I'm so tired of this woman. <laughs> wow. Oh, well, God. Ben, you can't say that. Um <laughs> what? <laughs> But yeah, if my commute to the movies was five minutes again, I'd probably do that too. But it's thirty now, so no. Yeah, that's true. And so yeah, this movie stars uh, 
Leonardo DiCaprio as uh, Rick Dalton, who is a, a, a former cowboy western star who's kind of at the end of his tenure as you know the, the hero in all the stories, kind of starting to play the heavy or the villain in the stories. Uh, Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth, who is his stunt double. Um, we're going to get into Cliff Booth pretty soon, so I'm not going to say much more. And then uh, Margot Robbie. And who is, uh, Smith, who is Margot Robbie playing? This is the part when I found the trailers for the film, this movie that it just fucking shocked me. She's playing Sharon Tate. And Marcus, who is Sharon Tate? I have no idea. <laughs> okay, so this is something I want. I really wanted to get into with the movie. We can wait. Hold on a second. So this means that Marcus does not under, does not even know why I'm shocked that Sharon Tate is in the movie. Exactly. And we're not gonna. We'll, we'll get into this later. But I'm gonna go ahead and frame this now. A very important part of this movie that I mean to me is understanding about the Manson family murders in uh, California in the 1960s and how they kind of framed Hollywood for a while. And I think that's one of the main reasons that Quentin Tarantino made this movie and one of the big uh, devices he uses in the movie. And while I was watching it, I was wondering, what would someone who doesn't know anything about the Manson murders actually think about this movie? Because they, the whole, I would say that the, the climax of the movie, not, I guess not really the climax because it's the very end, but the whole reason the movie exists, the whole, this whole ending scene, kind of plays on your knowledge of the Manson family murders. So we're gonna talk. We're gonna talk to Marcus throughout this movie to kind of get his his opinions on you know how this movie actually how some of the moments hit for him as they did for people who actually know about the murders. So I'm glad we I have, have one more. <laughs> I have one more question. I have one more question here. Uh huh. Marcus, do you think Rick Dalton was a real person? Yes, Rick Dalton seems like a real person. Okay. All right. Good to know. How about Cliff Booth? Yes. Um. Also a real person, I feel like his character might be a bit inflated. Okay. But I, I do bit, like him, yeah, though. No shit. <laughs> I do like him, though. Marcus did use a great word for Brad Pitt's performance, which is a bit inflated. Um, <laughs> by the way, Brad Pitt is my already my Oscar nominee for this movie. I think he did incredible. Oh, um, oh yeah. But yeah, so the movie, uh, basically, the movie takes place, I mean, it spans about six months of time, but it only takes place in three separate days um, in the 1960s. Um, at the beginning of it, we see, you know, Rick Dalton is frustrated that he might have to go be in some Italian westerns. The second time that Quentin Tarantino has gotten an actor to say Italian in one of his movies. <laughs> the last time being Brad Pitt in Inglorious Bastards. So he's completed the, the, uh, the two points he needs there. And so he's frustrated because Italian Westerns suck, in his opinion. And, which is crazy. Spaghetti Westerns are really good. Um, mm. But yeah, so that, that's his whole frustration. Cliff Booth, almost too laid back of a man. He's just like, <laughs> hey, who cares? Whatever. You'll be fine. Whatever. It's the 60s. Who cares? Um, As you will come to understand, uh, scarily laid back. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get, we're getting there pretty soon. And so, yeah, we see this. And then right next to him, he lives in the Hollywood Hills. And right next to him is uh, Sharon Tate, who is currently married to Roman Polanski. Uh. Who we, we now all know is a child rapist. Just like, what a mindfuck that which, was. Which, by the way, isn't even that 
different anymore. At first, it was the interesting thing about Roman, or the different thing about Roman Polanski. Now, everyone's a child rapist. So, yeah. it's like, kind of, he's just like everybody else in Hollywood, apparently. I mean, it's just like you said uh, in our last episode, Seth. You just need enough money to be a child molester. Exactly. Apparently, you get enough money and you're like, there's just one thing left on my list. <laughs> <laughs> Roman Polanski was the first one to get caught. So I just want to point out that it, when, when you first see Rick Dalton's home in this movie, the, the camera pulls back and you see that it's on Cielo Drive. Yes. Which, again, if you know the Manson family murders, that is a huge name for people. Yeah, and you're like, oh, shit. You know, if you didn't know from the trailers, you kind of know what's going to happen here. So. So, yeah, that's his big frustration. Oh, my God, I got to do this. And the next day, he's going to be filming an episode of a show called Lancer, which is actually a real show from the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, it ran for 53 episodes. And he's going to play the heavy, the bad guy. And, and the pilot, and right? the pilot, yeah. So it's, it's big. They're like, oh, we're getting Rick Dalton to play it. He's at the end of his fame. We're going to use this. The whole device back then, as Al Pacino explains, is to get the new guy to defeat the old guy. So it looks like, you know, oh, this guy's actually better. So you're watching the better show now. Kind of like a passing of and the torch thing. Exactly. Lancer played by incredibly one of my favorite actors of all time, Timothy Oliphant, who is... I would say underused in this movie. I'm going to get to that as well. The fucking insane cast for this movie who all have like one line together, <laughs> which is just yeah. crazy to me. Um, the I, I, will, I will tell an anecdote real quick. I was in the theater the first, the, the, both the first and the second time I saw this. Second time it wasn't a surprise. Both times when they, they did the, the main three, they did Leo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie. And then they said, also starring, and the first name was Emil Hirsch. I jumped out of my seat. I <laughs> propelled about 10 feet in the air like I was Michael Jordan in Space Jam. And I was like, Emil Hirsch is next to build? <laughs> what? <laughs> I, was, I was on the verge of a mental breakdown in the theater. Think about how far down Kurt fucking Russell is. Yes. Um, so, yeah. And so that's that's where we are. Um, he's filming an episode of Lancer, and at the same time, very a very good performance I think is put in by Margot Robbie. But basically, what we what we see is that Sharon Tate is mystified by her own being in movies. She loves the art, so she's walking around seeing her own movies, and she's loving it. Yeah. Enchanted is how Enchanted, yes. Yeah, I really like Margot Robbie in this because she 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 looks like Sharon Tate, and on, yeah. on top of that, just there uh, in that scene. I know we're gonna get to it, but in the scene when she's in the movie theater and she's like watching herself on screen, they they don't like digitally add Margot Robbie into the Sharon Tate movie. That it's just normal Sharon Tate. But honestly, at some points, looking back and forth, I couldn't tell the difference. So I thought that was yeah. just a- excellent, excellent casting. Exactly, and I think that's something a really smart move in this movie is it, it kind of goes to show us that we're seeing Tarantino's version of Hollywood or his historical um, fiction of Hollywood. We're seeing these people play out their lives in a version of Hollywood that okay, what we see in the movie clearly doesn't exist. So when you see Margot Robbie looking at the actual Sharon Tate in the movie, it just kind of goes to show you, you that in the theaters we are watching a kind of heightened version of reality a, a different timeline that we could have lived in and some people were criticizing the movie because margot robbie has such a small in quotation parts and she's underserved but i think that i mean yes she does have a lot less screen time than the other two leads but i think that she what she did she accomplished very well she has to play a very important part in this movie 
to make everything work together. And I think she did it very well. And I was I was very pleasantly uh, surprised by her performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and hold on, let's look real quick. Let's stick with Marcus here. Yeah, Marcus. Uh-huh. We got our Marcus report. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> so you don't know who Sharon Tate is? No idea. But what did you think of her character in this movie? Um. Okay. Well, in the scene you guys were talking about her like watching her own movie, I was like. <laughs> When I first watched this, I was like, is she lying to get into this movie free? It's just 75 cents. Or was it like 15 cents? It was cheap. Well, back then, 75 cents was like $700 now, so. <laughs> but yeah, like, because <laughs> I have no reference to to the, was it the man? So you thought that, you thought she wasn't even in the movie. You thought yeah, she just I was, said she was. I was like, wow. <laughs> you thought she was just trying to break into a movie. Yeah, I was just like, oh, oh, oh my that's god! Weird. I wish I could watch this movie as Marcus. Now. That right there is <laughs> already the best thing I've heard. <laughs> Wait a minute, let's roll back for a second. Then I have another question, Marcus. Side, side, <laughs> yeah. side question. Yeah. Before the conversation we just had, uh-huh. Uh-huh. who did you think Roman Polanski was? <laughs> uh, no so no you idea. did not know that Roman Polanski was a very famous director who was accused or not accused was definitely a child racist <laughs> De- no I had no idea okay you wow. guys keep forgetting so, I live under a rock this is true this is true but this is this is a fascinating way to watch this very specific movie yeah mm-hmm. so yeah I want to point out that the character's character does say that he directed Rosemary's Baby which have you seen that film what what do you think you think I've seen this film <laughs> We watched a lot of movies in college. I don't know if we watched that one or not. No, but... Probably not. Okay. All right. I just wanted to be sure. Okay. I just, I just had to check mm-hmm. in. Rosemary's Baby was kind of a turning point in um, Hollywood horror. Mm-hmm. Um, so when he then they said he had just directed that movie, it was a big deal because that movie was fucking huge. Legendary. At the time, obviously. It made like $5 back then, which Ooh. is $16 billion these days. <laughs> so... I like this calculation. Honestly, I love going on Box Office Mojo looking at adjusted for inflation. Like a movie that made fifty million dollars in the eighties is like a one hundred and twenty million dollar movie today. Mm-hmm. That's how crazy inflation is. Like it's it's insane. Mm-hmm. So it's rough. Yeah, and like, that should just go. Yeah, like whenever go I ahead. whenever I go and look at uh how much uh the first two Terminator movies made, like Terminator Two Judgment Day, I think it said it only made like around a hundred fifty million dollars or something. But if you adjust that for inflation, that that's huge. Yeah, it's like a four hundred million dollar movie. Yeah, which even these days, if that movie was released, it would make like seven eight hundred at least. Oh yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, where are we at? So Sharon Tate, you know, I think Margot Robbie does a good job with the performance and. The the whole once I don't I don't here's the thing I don't want to spill the the beans yet to Marcus so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give too much about Sharon Tate all I'm gonna say is for for the vo- those of us who are uh, acutely aware of the Manson family murders or you know have some knowledge we are like oh crap she is a very whimsical you know en- enchanted character like you said and things are gonna change for her later in the movie. So you kind of, we're seeing this and we're like, oh no, we're going to watch this, you know, this nice thing get, cor- let's say, corrupted for now. I was just going to say, real quick, we're 16 minutes in, spoilers for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, <laughs> and spoilers for real life history. Yes, if you are Marcus, you, if, by the way, if your name is Marcus, you might want to go read something first, because oh. this is going to be a big spoiler. Okay. Um, 
So yeah, Margot Robbie goes to movie theater. It's a really good scene. It is another entry in Quentin Tarantino's foot fetish. Woo! <laughs> yep. right. Which boy, he really works in here, doesn't he? he a couple works. times. I was listening to another movie podcast the other day, and they did say something very interesting. They said, we do make fun of Quentin Tarantino for his foot fetish, which is it's funny, obviously. But one thing we don't appreciate enough is he can frame feet really well. When he films them, he actually puts a lot of care into those shots. Like I was, I rewatched Kill Bill the other day, and the scene where she's telling herself, her, she's like telling her feet to work. She's like, "Oh my god, it's such a good framing." And yeah, so I think that that's a pretty good point. You know, we make fun of it, but at least he, at least this man fetishizes it and puts a lot of work into making it look good on screen. He does it at this point, and he also does it with Margaret Qualley later in the movie when she's in Brad Pitt's car. Yeah, man. so we have two entries in the foot fetish. Man, I don't, I don't know if his foot, if this is uh, the most he's put into his movies with the foot fetish, or if I've just become hyper aware of it now. But it felt like a lot of feet. There was a lot most, of feet. The most egregious use of his foot fetish is. Look, I was gonna point something out. You know this Quentin Tarantino sicko motherfucker was like, I'm making a movie set in 1969, baby. Hippies, no shoes, that means feet everywhere. Yeah, that's probably the main reason he made this movie. <laughs> fuck the whole the Golden Hollywood, fuck the Manson murders. I just want an excuse to show barefoot women yeah. walking everywhere. The most egregious use of his foot fetish, though, even though he didn't direct this movie, he had a big hand in it, is in From Dust Till Dawn. When he gets oh. Salma Hayek to pour tequila down her leg onto her foot, and then he drinks the tequila oh, yeah. from her foot. <laughs> that was a good night for him. <laughs> he, he was probably like, hey guys, let's run that one again. We didn't get it right that time. We, we didn't get it right that time. 57 <laughs> takes you later. Got, you, you gotta love how Marcus thinks that the movie was actually shot at night. <laughs> like, like, it was just one well, continuous wait a minute, thing. Wait a minute. Let's not Let's not disparage Marcus. They may have shot that at night. We don't know. Fair point. It was inside. I'm just saying. Marcus thinks they shoot movies the times that are in the film. I mean, it makes perfect sense. You know, the darkness is just right. It does. So easy. Yeah, this movie. This movie was shot in 1969 uh, in August. Uh, Excellent. Yeah, they they had this one in the can for a while. Yeah. Um. Took a while. But yeah. So what? What do we have? What else we have to talk about? Pre time skip. Uh, I mean, I mean, there's the there's the the whole thing where Dalton goes and he he's he's on Lancer and he tries he, he encounters this child. Yes, this child. <laughs> the child. Let's call the child for a second. What child is this? I feel like this child is both. I mean, in a good way for the viewer and for Tarantino, but also in kind of a bit of a snarky way, is kind of like 2019 as a person in the movie. I think he's kind of like, this kid is the future. Which is, once again, one of the whole big points of this movie is fear of change and fear of the future. People were scared at the end of the 60s that Hollywood was going to change. And it did. And they personify it in this little girl. Um, She likes to read big books about Walt Disney. She doesn't prefer being called Pumpkin Puss, which, who does? Yeah. Why is that a word people said back then? (laughs) Yeah. And she is... She she takes acting very seriously and story very seriously, and she tries to get all that through to Rick Dalton to try to make I guess try to heighten his own performance in the end of the day. Yeah, she basically just comes in here and shows him that like 
he is pretty much obsolete. Um, and he also acknowledges at one point that she will also be obsolete at some point. Yes. There will be another person like her. Um, but one thing I do enjoy about this film is that Rick Dalton is depicted as a, as a, as a person who is who liter- who really does give a shit about being a good actor. Like he tries very hard. Yeah, he's not um, he's not just trying to shit one out every couple of years to make money. Exactly. Yeah. He does want to be a good actor. And you see that in the scene when they're shoot when they're shooting uh this episode of uh Lancer uh Lancer, right? That's what it's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lancer. It's just doing the whole one take uh, one take shot spinning around. He gets to a line he forgets and he line and then we see him back in the trailer and he's so fucking pissed. He's throwing that- he's throwing shit against the wall. He's like you embarrass yourself in front of all these goddamn people. That's actually a pretty good impression. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was, yeah. I've watched this but trailer yeah. a lot. This whole. Are you sure you didn't just like play that from the trailer? <laughs> he has it on his phone, queued up, ready to up. It's my ringtone. <laughs> um, but yeah, so and those those two scenes back to back are very good. First of all, the fact that they're shooting the western show Lancer like it's a modern day movie. Like we know that in reality they're they're shooting it and they're cutting it the way they're supposed to. But Tarantino just shoots it the way he shoots movies. And once again, gives us this bit of, you know, fantastical realism that we're living in. And then right after that, the the breakdown that DiCaprio has in his trailer is amazing. When he says, I'm going to blow your goddamn brains out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was fucking dying. You know what? I was like, I'm goddamn. I'm fucking done drinking. I'm done. And then he immediately <laughs> drinks. <laughs> spits it out when he realizes yeah. what he's doing. But, and so that's great. There's another important part about Lancer we haven't talked about. Which is probably one of the most important parts about the movie. So, when he's first getting on the set of Lancer to go to wardrobe, Cliff Booth drops him off. And Cliff Booth is, you know, like we said, historically his stuntman. And Cliff's like, hey, can you just ask the stunt guy if I'm going to be working this week so I know what my schedule is? And he's like, nah, don't worry about that. He's friends with, uh, was it Steve? Randy. Randy, He's like, yeah. no, this guy's friends with Randy. It won't happen. And we're like, oh, what, what's going on with Randy? So later, when he goes back home to uh, fix uh, Rick Dalton's satellite, he has a little flashback. Oh, wait, so satellite. You mean antenna. Antenna. Sorry, 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 sorry. Antenna. We're not sorry. that far. Antenna. There, buddy. I'm sorry. Marcus, do you know what an antenna is? No idea. What the hell is that? Okay. <laughs> it, it should be noted that, that Brad Pitt, Cliff Booth, points out in the movie that he is more than just Rick Dalton's stuntman. Yes. He is his gopher. He is his go-do stuff yeah, guy. He's his driver. He does stuff around his house. He house sits for him. He also freaking parkoured up the side of that building. Yes. To I thought he was going like, to grab a ladder, but no, he just jumped on top of Rick Dalton's house. Just in a single bound, he is Superman. Yeah. And also, he has a very, very well-trained dog. We have a whole sequence in this movie to let us know how well-trained his dog is, which is going to be very important later in the movie. We should point out as well that while he is getting his tools to fix the antenna, we get a callback to an earlier scene when we didn't even talk about the fact that fucking... Rick Dalton met with fucking Al Pacino's character. I didn't mention that about and, him being an Italian Western. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, the flamethrower. We see that he he brought the flamethrower back from an earlier movie and has yes, it. Yes, the fourteen fifths of McCluskey. <laughs> and mm-hmm. but yeah, so Cliff Booth, he like he's up there and he's reminiscing about something that happened in the past. And what, what we see is he was on the set of the Green Hornet, uh, the old TV show that Bruce Lee was on. <laughs> Um, back when uh, Rick Dalton was doing a stint on there. Wait, why did Marcus woo woo the Green Hornet? Because I love Bruce Lee. Like, I love Bruce Lee. I love Green Hornet. I'll give him that. Okay, I have to make sure. Bruce Lee guy. So, and then, 
So apparently he wasn't he wasn't going to be doing stunts on that shoot. He's sitting outside of the dressing room. He sees fucking Kurt Russell, who is Randy yeah. in this movie. Fucking Randy, the <laughs> stunt guy. Randy, stunt coordinator, I guess. And do we think that do we think that Randy has any relationship with stuntman Mike? Maybe. I mean, it's the same fucking thing, right? Like, it's a stuntman is paid by fucking Kurt Russell. That's actually true. And great, uh, great thing they do, they use Zoe Bell as his wife. I like that. Yeah. But the point of the story is <laughs> yeah. Cliff Booth is sitting out there and he's like, hey, I should do stunts. I'm Cliff Booth. That's not how he sounds. That's Bill Clinton, I think. <laughs> um, but, and then Randy's like, I don't know. Bill on the call? So then he goes in and he talks to Rick Dalton. And he's like, no, just fucking put him in a suit, hit him with a car, shoot him in the head, kick him in the balls, murder his mom. I don't care. What do we got to do? And then he's like, I don't, he's like, I don't like the guy. I don't like the vibe he brings on set. And Rick Dalton's like, what do you mean? And then Kurt Russell is like, you stupid motherfucker. He killed his wife. And that's when we all take a step back. We're like, wait a minute. This guy killed his wife. Okay. Um, so that becomes, uh, it never is like something we talk about again in the movie. Except, except later in this very scene. But it becomes something that you know about Cliff Booth's character. Is that he killed his wife and got away with it. Allegedly. I mean, the movie does kind of spell it out that he did kill his wife. But as far as... Well, it comes to a scene with his wife, uh, who played Rebecca Gayhart. Yes. On a boat where she is just, like, giving him hell. And it cuts, like, you see, it cuts away as he just kind of, like, idly aims the, ho- like, spear gun right at her. Yeah. <laughs> and just lets, you, lets your imagination do the rest. Exactly. So he's accused of killing his wife. And getting away with it, which, I mean, he did get away with it. And so that's something you just kind of know about his character for the rest of the movie. Um, and I actually like this scene. I wanted to get some more opinions. I know I talked to you about this already, uh, Smith. But um, what happens later in the scene is Bruce Lee is talking about how he could beat up Muhammad Ali, which is obviously made up. There's no way Bruce Lee ever said that. And then him and Cliff Booth make fun of him, and they decide to do a three rounds, whoever knocks each other down first fight. Bruce Lee wins the first, Cliff Booth wins the second, and the third gets broken up. But Cliff Booth's like holding his own against Bruce Lee. So I want to get you guys' opinion on this. Do you think that Cliff Booth is romanticizing this memory and he didn't actually fight Bruce Lee like this, or do you think this actually happened? Hmm. Uh, I think I definitely think it was uh, romanticized a little bit because if you know anything about Bruce Lee, it's that I don't think there was anybody out there who could really kick his ass. But yeah, especially not any actors. Yeah, <laughs> but at the same time, that also kind of let me in on uh, this film may, may be a little bit of a fantasy, you know? <laughs> exactly. That is one thing because people were complaining that Bruce Lee wasn't char- uh, characterized very well. And that a lot of this stuff would never happen, like I said, and that once again, it, it maybe it was a real thing, and it does contribute to the fact that this isn't actual history. Yeah, yeah. Also, they don't they don't, they don't say it in the movie, except for one reference to Brad Pitt's character being a war hero, uh, but he was a Green Beret, so you know that could that could possibly have an effect. When do they say he's a Green Beret? They do not say it in the movie, but it is in the uh, trivia information. Oh wow, okay. Oh. So he is a Green Beret, so maybe he does have some hand-to-hand skills. Not. Well, hold on, Marcus. As, as a Bruce Lee fan, how did you feel? Yeah, okay, this this part in the movie is where I said <laughs> where I put the emphasis on the inflated part of uh, that guy. <laughs> I'm like, mm, I don't think he could beat Bruce Lee, but you know, from what I saw, I was like, it, they handled it all right. I understand Bruce Lee wasn't that much of an asshole, 
but it was funny and I enjoyed it and I was like okay I can't I can't take this as like true history so I was like yeah I enjoyed it I, I kept it moving <laughs> and then so that that scene is very important to what we know about Cliff Booth's character and then that same night we get to see that um, we get to see what Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski do in their nightlife. They take a trip to the Playboy Mansion where they party and they meet up with Jay Sebring, played by Emil Hirsch. <laughs> Still crazy to me. Um, first build after the main stars. And we get to see Steve McQueen, played by Damian Lewis. Also, there's no lines, I don't know. No, think. he does have, he has a very important line. Oh, what is it? Late, well, so later when they get into the party, we see Steve um, McQueen, and he's like, so Sharon Tate was engaged to Jay Sebring, and then she went to, was, was it Poland? Is that where he's from? Yeah. She went to Poland to make a movie with Polanski, broke off with her engagement to Jay Sebring, got engaged to Roman Polanski, and now since they've come back, the three of them hang out a lot. And he has a funny line about how he's not her type because he's not short, brunette, and, you know, weird or whatever. He's like, I never had a chance, which is great. They mean Lewis fucking, like, fifth build the movie. One line. <laughs> um, so, yeah. and we So we get to see a little bit of the, the glitz and glamour, and we see that there is this weird connection between Polanski, Tate, and Sebring. And, once again, Marcus... The Marcus Report. What is. what did this relationship between the three of them mean to you? Um. <laughs> well, it seemed like a weird, like kind of bounce around thing, and I'm just like, okay, that's that's kind of weird, but you know, okay, it's Cali, and they're gonna do what they're gonna do. Okay. Also, I want to say real quick, uh, Marcus, I don't want to cut you off here, uh, but. We talked about Steve McQueen for a second there, right? Yes. We are. We didn't mention the part where on the set of Lancer, Timothy Oliphant's character has a conversation with uh, Rick Dalton about whether or not he almost got cast on The Great Escape. Yes. And we, we get an incredible, like, uh, I don't know, what would you call that? What would you call that? Like, like, what, how, they, they insert... They di- um, I guess they digitally impose, you'd say? Yeah, like DiCaprio's character, Rick Dalton, into the, into the actual Great Escape footage, where he plays the character that Steve McQueen played in, in, in our world. And I Now, here's my question for y'all. Did y'all think that scene was... Do you think that Rick Dalton actually got and did screen tests as that character? Or do you think this is him fantasizing about what it could have been? I think he got screen tests. Yeah, and I think that's why he was so cho- like that's why he was so adamant that he ne- like oh yeah never met the director and everything because I think that it's easier for him to tell people that he never got it than to say he was so close to becoming you know a huge movie star. Mm-hmm. Yeah, d- Marcus, what did you what did you think? Oh, sorry. Uh, I was I was basically going to say what uh, Seth said. Okay, Marcus. Oh, I was like ooh. Uh, like, cause <laughs> no, cause <laughs> cause you can tell like the style change, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. But I was like, I can't, I couldn't I couldn't tell. I guess that um, what is it? It was it was well done. I couldn't Marcus, do Marcus. you know how Hitler died? <laughs> Did he shoot himself? Okay. Okay. All right. He's one for one. Okay. Cool. I just wanted to make sure you knew that. Who who was Steve McQueen? 
Um, and don't I, say I he was a car. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> well, <You're in> <laughs> technically, and to defend Marcus on this one, in the first season of the show Atlanta, they do claim that black people don't know who Steve McQueen is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. Okay, so that the, we have we have verified a racial stereotype. Cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> fuck. But yeah, he was a you know he's actor and now director. Cool. Um, award winning uh, feature. What did he win the award for? Twelve Years a Slave. Yeah. Yes, he won for Twelve Years a Slave. A very good movie. Um. So yeah, we we kind of see this this contrast when Rick and Cliff go home. They kind of just drink themselves to sleep and watch episodes of shows that Rick Dalton is in and Polanski and Tate and Sebring go out and have the time of their life at Hugh Hefter's Playboy Mansion. So where do we go? Is, is, the ne- is time skip next? Yeah, that's when Schwarz calls up the Italian director and says, turn on FBI. Uh, I, got your, I got your hero for your movie. And then we cut mm-hmm. to six months later. Yeah, so uh, hey, uh, I, I, I hate to interrupt. But uh, the Steve McQueen who directed uh, 12 Years a Slave is not the same Steve McQueen from The Great Escape. That is entirely different. different. What? That's bullshit. That's There's insane. There's another Steve McQueen? This Steve McQueen is black. That makes more sense. That makes, what? Yeah, he, that makes way more sense. He directed... This is like some fucking Nick Fury shit where an alternate universe version of Steve McQueen is here. Yeah, he directed 12 Years a Slave, that movie Shame with... Uh, with uh, yeah, with fa- Fassbender's dick, yes. Yeah. And recently, uh-huh. Widows. Oh, he did Widows! Oh, shit! That movie is fucking... That movie honks, okay? That movie fucks <laughs> to the extreme. <laughs> Widows is fucking great. It is. Uh, Everyone go see Widows. Honks as a that movie honks. That's, hey, that's our word. <laughs> okay, you, can, you guys honk all you want. <laughs> what did I just say? <laughs> oh, oh, my bad. Okay. Excuse me. So, but, fucking honks, bro. Okay. So different Steve McQueen's <laughs> crazy. There's two people with such a unique name, but that's insane to me. Uh, director Steve McQueen makes bomb ass movies. Widows mm-hmm. is a banger. Everyone should see. Ben. Have you seen it? Uh, no, not yet. Watch it. It is fucking great. Um, so yeah, we find out that um, Rick Dalton had to swallow his pride and do these Italian westerns. He ends up being in like four or five, I believe, and. He, he comes back to America after six months. He does like four movies in six months. So they're just churning these things out for Rick Dalton. And so he comes back home because his, um, his Italian apartment was getting too expensive. But he comes back with his new Italian wife, Francesca. And uh, he's coming back to live in the, the Hollywood Hills. He has had to let go. He told Cliff Booth that they're going to have one more night together in America, in America before he has to get rid of him because he can't afford to pay him anymore. And so, yeah, we're about to see their, uh, their last night of camaraderie before they got to part ways as a employer-employee. And we should note, this is the part of the movie, too, where before this it was tracking exact days, which is a little bit weird. And here we're back to exact days, but also they start tracking exact times. Yes. Also, we are stupid. Oh my god, you're right. We have not mentioned a huge part of this movie. We haven't. I'm fucking close. Okay, rewind. Six months have, have not happened. Yeah, yeah. All that I was about happened. to say, are we going to come back to this? Or? We, uh, we're coming back. This is actually, actually, this is a good time to do it, because we're after this, the events that happen and what we're about to talk about are going to get a coalesce the rest of the movie. So, Listener, do you remember when Brad Pitt was on top of the house when he jumped up like a monkey? 
he saw a guy show up, a creepy looking greasy man who waves at him and walks over to, to, to share. He drove like house. a broken ice cream truck. Yeah. And was asking around for some guy named Terry. Yes. And that's a, it's, that's it. That's his whole scene in the movie. This guy who yes. we don't know anything about this yet. This guy, Marcus, who do you think this guy is? Um, well, he's a very bad door-to-door salesman. I'll give you that. <laughs> yes. That's one way to put okay. it. Okay. So, Marcus, you don't know who this man is. That's no. fine. We're not going to tell you just yet. Oh, well, fuck. <laughs> so. <laughs> but yeah. So, Cliff Booth has a bit of his own adventure in the, the, the six months prior scene. While the whole Lancer filming is going on, he's uh, he's had a bit of a, a look at each other in the street romance, or like just a little infatuation with a hippie named Pussycat, played by Margaret Qualley, and the per- girl whose feet we see later on in the movie, just in a little bit. So they've great seen, actress, yeah, very good actress. She's in The Leftovers, incredible show, and The Nice Guys, great movie. Go see him. Um, and. So he sees her, and they, they always pass each other, and normally, like, she's looking for a ride because she's a hippie and has no car, and he's always going the other way. This time, he's going the way she wants. She does a very, very large dance. Like, she spins, like, 85 times in, in the sidewalk. And then, in the best part uh, for the millennials of the movie, she sees some cops, flips them off, and says, fuck you, pig. So, mm-hmm. good on Margaret Qualley, or on Pussycat <laughs> for that scene. Very cathartic. And then she tells, she gets in the car and she tells him that she's going to Spawn Family Ranch. Marcus. Again, huge, huge name. Marcus. Uh, yeah. Spawn Family Ranch. What do you think? I mean, do, do they make Spam or something? Okay. No, they make the um, movie Spawn. Yeah, they ah, make the, the McFarlane toy series Spawn. Yeah. <laughs> um, Just that. Over and over again. So, it's a, it's a old western you know cowboy movie movie shoot they just go there a lot of the stuff that rick dalton was in was filmed there which is why how cliff booth knows how to get there he did stunts for rick dalton and they were here about eight years ago and so he's like hell yeah i'll go to spawn family ranch and once they get there um we see some interesting uh, hippies right we got lena dunham controversial person to be in this movie but whatever she's like a pregnant hippie and she's like hey come over here and see this um, we meet, uh, Austin Butler, who plays Tex in the movie, um, who's, I guess, kind of something like a pseudo leader of this little part of the, the, um, shall we call them hippie family. You get the sense that he's supposed to be like a badass. Yeah, he's supposed to be like the guy they all like, like, and he's cool or whatever. We, you know, we'll see how that goes later in the movie. But they're like, we gotta get Tex to check this guy out. We don't know anything about him. And they keep saying, Charlie's gonna love you. Charlie? Dude, our boy Charlie, good old fun times Charlie, he's gonna love you. Charlie's a great man. You're a we, dude. Fucking good times, happy days, <laughs> fucking cool as a cucumber. Charlie is gonna love this guy. Marcus. Can't wait to meet fucking Charlie. Marcus, do you have any idea who Charlie is? Um, does he own a chocolate factory? Okay. God damn <laughs> so, it. Okay. <laughs> Well, okay. So, Charlie's gonna love him, though. Tex comes up, he's like, hey! Yeah, and Char- they have Austin Butler doing a very interesting Southern accent. I like his accent in the movie, but it's it's very, very, like, laid on. But it is good. Mm. And he's like, he's like, yeah, this guy's cool or whatever. He goes back, because they, they do tour, like, horse tours of Spawn Family Ranch, like the mountains around it and everything, little hills. And they're like, okay, so he's doing that. He goes back to doing that. 
And this is where Cliff Booth is like, you know, I know the guy. I know the guy who owns this place, uh, George Spawn. Is he here? And they're all like, um, uh, 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 nah, you know, he is. But there's no possible way you can talk to him because he's taking a nap. We're sorry. You might, he, you, you, we can't talk to him. He's nappy. He's nappy boy. <laughs> right? He's tired. He's not the nappy boy, but anyway. Yeah. So he's like, Cliff Booth is like, all right. Long story short, Cliff Booth's like, I'm not going to leave this place until I talk to George Spawn. And they're like, okay. So they approach the house, and this one other, I guess the female lead hippie, the, the leader of the inside hippies, is like, <laughs> all right, everybody get you out. You're fanning, I, by the way. I was, okay, I was getting there. I say, oh, we sorry. haven't seen her face yet, but now you've ruined it. So uh, we haven't. Well, she's unrecognizable, so what are you going to do there? Also, I saw her build. When I first saw this movie, I didn't realize that was her. I did not realize no, it. No, I saw it again, and I was like, oh, Dakota Fanning is in this movie. Did I miss her? <laughs> no, she's fucking, um, her name is... Squeaky. Twe- Twippy or something. Squeaky. Squeaky. <laughs> Squeaky. Squeaky. Squeaky from. Yes. So, she she gives him a hard time. She's like, you can't really see him. He's, uh, he's taking a nap. And Cliff Booth is like, I don't care if he's taking a nap. Everyone keeps saying this. I don't care. <laughs> I want to talk to him. I want to see my so best friend. Yeah, so Ben's on the point with the impressions. <laughs> I love and it, I love it. So then she's like, whatever, he might be tired, I fucked his brains out. By the way, this girl, I guess the movie is supposed to be about like 20 years old, and George Spawn is about 600, so <laughs> yeah. weird imagery there. Also, they make it kind of implied that all the girls like blow him or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, goes, talks to George Spawn, and George is like, I don't know who you are, I can't see, get out of here, I want to keep fucking this red-headed girl and it's very apprehensive to doesn't remember who he is and all that kind of stuff and so cliff anything else in that conversation i need to bring up well i would just say this scene is incredible when you have seen the entire movie because the entire time i was thinking to myself cliff are you a fucking moron there's like 30 of these people and one of you if they decide to rush you man you're fucked well, like what's going on well and then well we, we see a little bit later in the movie that might not be enough <laughs> yeah. um because but also all 20 of those people combined don't weigh as much as brad pitt <laughs> so, yeah. and he is not heavy they're just all very small so he can probably well, on his way out he he sees that someone has stabbed a knife into his tire and he sees the guy who did it who is the Fucked up, the most fucked up person I've ever seen in a movie, almost. Weird teeth. Very meth, meth vibe. Yeah, like a Breaking Bad, like weird teeth, bad hair. And when he talks to him, he's like, hey, did you do that? He goes, <laughs> like, really fucking weird reaction to a man who's probably twice your size. It's like he came um, straight out of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like, yeah. like, what, like one of the family members. So then he was yeah. like, he goes to the car, he gets out a new tire, he's like, alright, you fix Not it. Not far from the truth, by the yeah. way. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, so, hey, you you go fix it. And the guy's like, fuck you. So then, and this is actually one of the coolest scenes in the movie to me. Cliff Booth walks up to him, squares up his feet, but the cool thing is, the way they shot this, I like it so much, as soon as he squares up his feet, he lays a super quick punch to the guy's nose and just sweeps the guy right off of his feet. It was such a quick transition from him squaring up to him punching. It just looked really cool to me. Well, I used the word feet I'm seeing here. Exactly. <laughs> Even this, you know, they're, they're male feet this time, but he's still on them. Because mm-hmm. so Clement is not wearing shoes. That's true. He punches the guy. 
picks him up by his long hair, punches him again, picks him up again, punches him one more time, throws him into the car. In real life, this man would be out cold. Like, you can't take yeah. three punches to the face like that and still be able to change a tire. But then he, <laughs> he throws the guy over to the car. All the other hippies are watching and yelling at him. And he throws him over there and he's like, all right, you fix it. This is when they're like, guys, go get Tex, a man who weighs 85 pounds soaking wet. We need Tex. Yeah, and they go get, so they go, they go get Tex yeah. and it's like, it takes them 20 minutes to get there, it felt like. They go get future Elvis Presley. Um, <laughs> Austin Butler is playing Elvis Presley in the new biopic they're making. Oh, so. snap. Yeah, so Austin Butler will be Elvis Presley. He gets back and by that time, Cliff Booth's already gone. He's had the tire replaced. He's out of there. So these people, they know Cliff Booth. He knows their faces. They know his. This, as we're going to call them, hippie family, who are obsessed with some guy named Charlie. Um, Marcus, yeah. any, any clues yet as to who we're talking about? Um, Charlie. Okay, cool. So, all right, we're back to six months. Um... And yeah, like like Smith said, they are now counting time. They're like, all right, it is 11 o'clock. They go to a taco place, get hammered, take a taxi back. It's like 11 whatever. And, and we're also at the same time tracking the movements of, uh, of uh, um, fucking... Margot Robbins. Sharon, uh, Sharon, Tate, Sharon Tate. Tate. and So it's Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, the Folger girl, and I can't remember the other guy. Wojcik Fry... Frykowski. Yes. Which, by the way, when you say Folger, you literally mean the heiress to the yeah. literal fucking Folger's family fortune. They say that. It's a Folger's family fortune. But, and we find, they, they also go have dinner that night, and we find out that Sharon Tate, because she's pregnant at the time, is feeling a lot more, she's like, the, she's feeling especially pregnant because how hot it is. So she's not super into everything that's going on. But they're having a pleasant time, and, you know, they go, they later go back to their house, and so we Cliff and Rick are in the, their house while Sharon Tate and J.C. Green, the other two, are in their house. Um, also, don't forget uh, Rick's new Italian wife. Francesca is asleep in the bed. And they have, uh, what's, uh, what is Brad Pitt's dog's name? Jenny? Brand- Brandy. Brandy. <laughs> and Brandy is washing out while they're gone. Um, so they come back and they decide it's time to just lay out for a little bit. DiCaprio goes out, or... Rick Dalton goes out and is listen to good old country music while he's uh, on his radio with his headphones on, while he's in his, pool. in his pool, just you know having a grand old time. Wait a minute, no, we missed another part. What we miss? Wait, no, no. Oh, the, right, margaritas the, 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 is the, 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 Yeah, the car full of yeah. uh, people well, shows up. So yeah, so Rick Booth already a Rick Booth. Oh my God, Rick <laughs> Dalton already. <laughs> drunk off of his ass decides you know what let's make a blender full of margaritas which by the way michael madsen's character in kill bill volume 2 makes the yep. exact same picture of margaritas with the exact same kind of ice tray so mm-hmm. fun facts uh, i just watched that movie very recently so this is fresh in my mind so and then he sees these hippies come up to his yard and it ends up being a tex a red-haired girl a vaguely asian girl and the girl who plays Robin on Stranger Things season three. Woo! By the way, real quick, side, side note: Do you know who that actress is? Which one? The one you're talking about from Stranger Things. Maya Hawke. Yeah. What about her? Do you know who her parents are? 
Ethan Hawke, Uma Thurman, and Ethan Hawke. That's crazy. Whoa. That's not a joke. That's who her parents fucking you, are. You can see it too. You can definitely see the resemblance. Yes. Yeah. If I, I, yeah, if you put Uma Thurman and Ethan Hawke together, I, that's who they'd have. Yeah. <laughs> that blew my fucking mind when I saw that's that. That's crazy. So yeah, and they are there, and uh, they pull up to Cielo Drive, and they're in Rick Dalton's driveway, and he comes out there with the fucking margaritas still in the blender, doesn't even pour them down in the mm. blender, and he's like, get the fuck off my property. And we, we see Tex, Tex puts his hands on a gun next to him and starts to squeeze it a little bit. But then they're just like, they're like, oh no, sorry, 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 we'll get off your property or whatever. And he's like, get the fuck off. So finally they leave. Dur- we should say, by the way, Tex is looking a pretty fucking rough. Yeah. yeah they, they are all... They're all looking They're rough. all very rough looking mm-hmm. people. And uh, during this time, Cliff Booth, he just uh, he just uh, smoked an acid-laced cigarette. <laughs> and he's walking his walking dog. Walking his dog. Brandy, they have such a good relationship. And... So then, after that, the car, the they keep their car parked out, uh, and they're 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 talking, and the the vaguely Asian girl is just like, guys, the other day I was on a fucking mind trip when I was freaking my bean, and I had I started this this mind idea as I call them. I was use I was using my brain palace to come up with it, and what I was thinking was that Rick Dalton, that guy, the guy who played Jake Cahill on Bounty Law in that house. When I, all they did, they were just murderers on TV. So we grew up watching these murderers, and they're teaching us how to murder. So why don't we just murder the murderers? <laughs> and they're like, and they're all just like, "Yo, that is that's tubular. <laughs> oh my god, how did you think of this? Holy shit! Dude. We should go there and kill all of them, dude." Um, so that's their idea. They have knives and guns and all this. Or one gun, three knives, apparently. I just want to point out that up until this moment, when they get out, when they drive the car back down the hill and they get out of the car, so far, everything that I know about the real life history of this matches up. And then, what happens? So then they get out, and then, (laughs) what is actually a really funny scene? Uh, Maya Hawk, we just shot out with Herman, uh, Ethan Hawk's kid. she was. She had the most trepidation about the whole thing. So when they all get out, they're about halfway up the the hill, and she's like, "Oh, I, I left my knife in the car. I gotta go get it." So then they're like, "Okay." And Tex is like, "I locked it, you idiot. Here's the key." So then she gets in the car and drives away. This is where history starts to divert a little bit. This, because that is not what happened. It's not what happened when the hippie family who loves Charlie did what they did this night in the sixties. Mm-hmm. Um. So then they they walk up and they are like, all right. They tell the vaguely Asian girl, they're like, go uh, go see if there's a back entrance. We're gonna do this. They get they're going to Rick Dalton's house, which currently Rick Dalton is out in the pool, like we mentioned earlier, listening to his music. He can't hear a thing. And Cliff Booth is making is getting his food ready for his dog, the canned food he feeds Brandy. And so then he's walking over. He Brandy starts barking, and then he sees red haired girl and Tex busting the front door. Vaguely Asian girl in the back door. And he is tickled <laughs> by <laughs> everything that is happening. And so they're like, how many people are in the house? Blah, blah, blah. He's like, one out back. He forgets Francesca. And they find Francesca. They're like, who's this? He's like, oh, that's Francesca. <laughs> what are you talking about? And so he's fucking high out of his mind. And he's just like, are you guys even real? <laughs> and... <laughs> And then he asks, he's like, oh, I know you. Your name's like, 
your name's like Rex or something. He's like, and then he's like, no, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's work. And he's like, no, it was dumber than that. Actual quote, by the way. Yeah, actual, factual. And so he's like, no, it was dumber than that. And then the girl straight up just says his name. She's like, hey, Tex. He's like, yeah, it was that. (laughs) And so this is where stuff starts. Once again, Rick Dalton, no idea what's happening in his house. Outside, jamming out to his country music. And then this is when stuff starts to get real. And he, um, Tex, starts to cock the gun and then we he, we see a tick from earlier where Brad Pitt or Cliff Booth goes, and that is Brandy's signal to just do whatever he wants. So he does that, points at Tex. She goes, bites the hand that has the gun in it. And I don't mean she just bites him. She's digging in to this guy. She's destroying him. But throughout this, she bites his hand, his lower thigh, and then his dick. Yeah, what kind of dog is she? A pit bull or a bulldog? Like She is can, a fucking stone cold killer is what she is. It's a beast is what she is. <laughs> she is murdering Tex. Like not no qualms about it. She is killing him. He will bleed out from the injuries she has given him. And this is when Vaguely Asian Girl decides to run at Cliff Booth. He's holding a can of dog food. And man, this is such a fucking visceral thing. He throws it square at her nose. And fucks her face to death. (laughs) Her face is flattened by this can. She looks like fucking Voldemort, but (laughs) bloody. Because her damn nose is fucking flat onto her face. Oh, God. And then... Yeah, we should say, this is incredibly violent. What we're about to describe is maybe one of the few times that a a violent scene in a movie got to me. Because I love Mm. violence in movies. Um... So Francesca does a good punch to the red-haired girl and then runs away. Red-haired girl runs, tackles Cliff Booth. They fall over to the fireplace and she looks kind of confused. We realize she stabbed Cliff Booth in like his upper thigh. He just looks at it. He taps it a little bit. Doesn't care. <laughs> Fucking. And then this is where the movie really got to me. He, he directs Brandy to go attack the Asian girl at this point. So Brandy's now just tearing this girl up. Her face is already all fucked up. Um, oh, also, forgot to mention, he goes up to Tex, stomps his head into the ground, actually, like... Oh, that's right! In the doorway, actually right? Actually curb stomps Tex to death. Like, you see his skull break. So Tex oh. is legit dead at this point. And now he's fighting the red-haired girl, and man, is it a fight. He punches her square in the face, and then, in something I don't think I've ever seen in a movie, he goes over to a rotary phone hits her head into it, and then it falls off, and then the little thing that hooks the phone up, he beats her face into those two things that just, you know, fucking kill you. At this point, she's already dead. Like, we shouldn't even... Yeah, pretty much. Like, what he does next is just icing on his violent cake. He does that, <laughs> beats her up against a framed poster of one of Rick Dalton's Italian westerns, and then beats her up against the fireplace. Literally, her face has, like, a rectangle carved into it at this point, where he's just beating her into the fireplace and then he takes this completely dead lifeless body over to a coffee table and beats it more into that good lord so this girl is obliterated uh, yeah vaguely asian girls and struggling against brandy and she gets her hands on the gun tex had and fires it into the air and that scares brandy off yes so then she and then she stumbles through the 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 glass uh door the sliding glass door And into the pool. So now she has she has literally like glass sticking out of her face. She's firing a gun into the air, and her f- 
face is just all bloody. And this is where Rick Dalton is just like, what the fuck? Because <laughs> he hasn't seen any of this shit happen. So, and in a stroke of genius, he oh, goes to man. the garage, gets the fucking flamethrower. Yes. And burns this girl to death. Chekhov's flamethrower, bitch. <laughs> so, it's kind of when the scene settles down. You see the police have come over. They're talking to everybody. And then my, the line for me that gets Brad Pitt the Oscar is when they're like, so what did he say? He's like, I don't know. He said he was the devil and he was going to do some devil stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's not verbatim. <laughs> Pretty verbatim. No, he says that. I mean, yeah, that's, that's what he says, yeah. Yeah, he says that's not verbatim. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I just want to point out one of my favorite things in this movie is a cute little scene where Brandy runs to go and, like, try and hide, and she, like, is scratching on the bathroom door, and also the Francesca opens it to let her in. Yeah, that was very nice. And so all this has happened, they're, like, you know, they're asking him what time everything happened, you know, and then, so Cliff Booth has to, Cliff Booth's been stabbed, he's losing some blood, so he has to go to the, the hospital in an ambulance. And he's like, yeah, hey, go take care of Francesca and Brandy. Don't come to the hospital with me. Just bring bagels tomorrow. It's whatever. Still alarmingly chill about everything. He is on acid (laughs) at this point, so maybe it's a little different. But I don't know if he'd be much different if he wasn't on acid. So It seems like he's been through a lot worse. (laughs) Yes. So all this happens, and then the the wee-oo-wee-oo, the ambulance goes off. And then J.C. bring Emil Hirsch. I'm losing my mind. He comes up and he's like, what, what happened? And this is where DiCaprio gets his second Oscar because he's just like, you know, some hippies came to our house and he's like, you know, they, they broke in and they were like threatening my buddy and he had to, he had to get rid of two of them. And then I torched the last one. He's like, what do you you mean you torched her? He's like, I have a fucking flamethrower and I I got it out and I, I torched her ass. And then, and then, JC, this is where Emil Hirsch gets his Oscar. <laughs> he's like, he's like, are they okay? And DiCaprio's like, the hippies are. <laughs> no, no, the, the hippies, they sure are not. Oh. And uh, then we hear Sharon Tate get on the microphone that's next to the gate, and she's like, hey, do you want to come up and have a drink? And then Rick Dalton, in a big, what I'm assuming for especially this movie, it's supposed to be a, a pseudo career move, decides to go up and have a drink with. Sharon Tate, J.C. Bring doesn't worry about Francesca because apparently she took five sleeping pills. It's gonna be asleep for months. So goes up, has a drink, credits. Yeah, that's the movie. Yeah. So what a fucking way to to end it. (laughs) This is where we have to do our big Marcus report. So before before we start talking about actual history, which I'm gonna let Smith do most of because he's a history guy. He's a history boy. Yeah. I want to know, what did you think of this movie? I was very confused. <laughs> okay. That's that's fair. <laughs> when when I heard when I heard the when I read the title Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was like, okay, we got this guy, he's an actor, California. <laughs> Apparently he's on the decline. He's looking for his, you know, revival, comeback, yeah. whatever. And then all this shit happens. I'm like, what the, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> okay, okay. But I liked it. I very you much enjoyed like it. You did like the movie. I okay. did. I did That's enjoy good. it. And That's I good. was like, yeah, yeah. I, 
All right. Halfway so, through, I forgot it was a Tarantino movie, but then, you know, obviously the ending reminded me. All right. So, Ooh. Smith's History Corner, what makes this movie special about history when it comes to history? So the fucking the fucking thing is, it's first of all, Quentin Tarantino is obsessed with getting things factually correct. Like, the advertisements you see on TV and the radio and all the fucking signs and everything are 100% period accurate. And the movie uses that to lull you into a belief that you're about to watch uh, a movie a movie about the Manson murders. It, however, it might be tangential to the actual story. That's what's going to happen. It's your fucking CLO drive. It's the fucking exact day it happens. You're like, this is what we're going to see. And my thought going into those last like 20 minutes of the film was that we were going to watch the Manson family murders unfold. Well, we should say the Tate the Tate murders. We yeah. Now, but there, were, there were more than just this. We were going to see this unfold while Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth sat around drunk and yeah, high. Yeah, and like and farted not, around and they didn't even know what was going on. Exactly. And that was but one instead, of my theories. That was I was wondering, I was like, okay, this is probably how they're going to play off this horrific ending comedically. Instead, it takes a huge fucking swerve into alt-history, and we end up here. Uh, because, Marcus, I'm not sure if I'm to tell you this, the guy that came by earlier, Charlie, that's Charles fucking Manson, dude. Uh, oh, oh, oh. There we go. <laughs> the correct oh, reaction. Yeah, the cool, easy, breezy Charlie from earlier, Charles Manson. Psychopath. <laughs> a now-dead serial oh, killer. Now, a lot of folks don't know this, but Charles Manson was a spiritual guru-type guy slash musician. And the reason he came around asking for Terry earlier in the film is he was trying to find Terry Melcher, who was a record producer, who later, between between the, these two like time periods, would snub him on recording an album. And so... On the night of the murders, he sent his this this group of four people. The uh, he sent uh, Watson, Atkins, uh, Cranwinkle, and Kasabian uh, to go murder them. Uh, to go to Terry's house and kill everyone inside. And what unfolded was uh, one of the more brutal murders that has occurred in American history because these people were not very good at killing people. And so it took a very long time, and it was the worst that it could have possibly been. Yeah, which is and one thing that they decide that they once again they play it comedically. One thing they decided to do with this movie was to show people that the Manson family were not serial killer, like trained serial killers. They were a bunch of cultists who were told to kill somebody. They were they were just as adept as killing somebody as any of us are, and which is why they are kind of also not that smart and not that bright. And it kind of shows that, that this movie kind of shows that side of them. And they killed Sharon Tate, who was at the time eight and a half months pregnant. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, uh, when we talk about Maya Hawke's character, this is interesting. She, Kasabian, did not actually kill anyone. She didn't participate in any of the actual murders. She kept watch. And at one point, even tried to defuse the situation by lying to Tex and saying there were people, there was someone coming. And that's why she eventually got immunity and was able to testify against everyone else uh, wow. in the trials. And she, she went on and suffered basically no consequences. I did not know this. 
But real quick question for everybody here. Does anybody know what the Manson family believed? Do y'all know what their fucking philosophy was? I, I've watched a documentary before, but I've forgotten since. Uh, basically, I basically Manson wanted to start a race war. What he wanted to do was he wanted to go in and kill all these famous people and then write things on the wall in blood like die, pigs, die, end up blaming them on black people, and then starting a whole race war, bringing on uh, what, he, what they called Helter Skelter. He believed that the White Album contained within it the clues to starting the race war. Yeah. <sighs> from which he believed, from which he believed, black people would emerge the victors. Yes. He thought that they would kill all the white people and win. What? And then... But he's like, yeah. we have to fight. <laughs> but, no, 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 no. Him and his followers were going to go build themselves an underground bunker in fucking Death Valley to wait out the war, and then they would ride out like goddamn Mad Max warlords and rule over this new world by like, I don't know, they somehow beat all the black people who defeated every other white person okay. in the world. I don't know how that was going to work, choose, but that was the plan. Choose a better bunker location. You will die <laughs> no in kidding. Death Valley. Yeah. That's why they call it that. <laughs> if you're not named The Undertaker, you're not going to survive in Death Valley. This is very true. WWE wrestler Undertaker is the only person to ever survive. Yeah. The, uh, that's the funny thing, is that Charles Manson originally got rolled up by the police, not for the fucking murders that he, that he ordered him to go do. He got rolled up because they were stealing cars to convert into dune buggies to ride across the desert in. Wow. So he was really and Mad Maxing it. Yeah. <laughs> and y'all, it took them an embarrassingly long time to connect the, these murders together. Because there were more than one of these murders. Um, and it took them a really fucking long time to make the connection. Yeah, but... But that's the real history of what happened. Yeah, so in reality, Sharon Tate and her unborn baby, J.C. Bring, and all the people were murdered. And so yeah, this movie, much like... Which, once again, I'm I'm so mad at myself that I didn't see it, because he did this in Inglorious Bastards. I asked you that earlier, Marcus. Yeah. Y- you've seen Inglorious Bastards, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hitler doesn't die by being shot a thousand times in the face by Eli Roth. He dies by <laughs> shooting himself way later in the future. So it's once again, and he does this, you know, subverting history thing, and it's smart and cool, and I love it, and I hate that I didn't see it coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. The the thing about that was like I should have connected the dots earlier because the because the feel of the movie it did not match what I thought was going to happen. It would be like a complete tonal shift. Well, that's what I thought. I thought they were going to try and do that tonal shift. But that's what the thing was. I thought they were going to do a bit of a tonal shift just for that scene. But like Smith said, my other idea was it would be it would be horrific imagery going on in one place and then Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth air drumming in their house in the other. <laughs> <laughs> and it would just and they were going to starkly contrast those two together. Yeah, which but w- once again, they which did would be this, a really ballsy thing to do. Yeah, but if anybody can do it. It's probably Tarantino. Probably, yeah. But yeah, so I want to say I want to say something real quick. By the go way, ahead. This, the the scene we talked about the horrific violence that 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 uh, Cliff uh, uh, enacts upon these cultists is uh, been talked about a lot. A lot of people are, are saying that you know Tarantino has a problem with violence against women, um, which you know that's a conversation we can have for sure. But did anybody else besides me get the feeling, and maybe I'm just totally projecting here that. This horrific, like, uh, uh, just act of violence that Cliff perpetuates is is Quentin Tarantino working out and his own anger at these cultists for robbing us of Sharon Tate, who I think Tarantino considers to have been 
an enchanted person that was a great actress. Do we feel like this is him like saying like if I had it my way, here's how it would have gone? I, I mean, I think you hit. Go ahead. I think you hit the nail on the head. Honestly, uh, what I felt like him. Uh, when we got to all that gruesome violence at the end where the Manson family are just suffering in horrific ways. I feel like it was his way of kind of undermining what they did and the effect they had on Hollywood, just completely undermining all uh, all the uh, fear that they brought on to people. Yeah, so like I said earlier, this movie is about a fear of change. And Tarantino obviously wishes that we grew up in a version of Hollywood where the Manson murders didn't happen, the Tate murders specifically didn't happen, and we lived in a slightly different um, reality. And that the re- and a lot of this goes towards Quentin Tarantino's own insecurity. While he is a very influential and important director, he himself feels like one day he may fade out of you know the lexicon of important directors. And like you said, the scene is kind of him beating that because he's so mad. He's like, this could happen to me. People love me now. People, you know, they talk about movies all the time, but any, uh, you know, one day I could not be relevant anymore. And he just, he really wants to hold on to that. So he's, you know, he's thinking if he rewrites history, rewrites Hollywood in this movie, maybe Hollywood will rewrite itself for him and keep him in and be important. And I think that's kind of what he goes for. I also want to point out that I will not recount the exact details of what happened in the actual Tate murders, but you can talk about violence all you want in this movie. What Cliff does in this fictional film to these people, and Rick also helps with, is not even one-tenth as bad as what they did to the Tate to Tate and, and her friends. It, it's a truly horrific mm-hmm. crime. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, that's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um. Also, we should talk real quick about the Bruce Lee thing. Um, because if we get into this movie, you realize that, I mean, that's not our Bruce Lee. Yeah, we realize now that this is, more than ever we realize, obviously, this is a very fictional version of Hollywood. And that's not the Bruce Lee. Um, played very well by a guy named Mike Moe, who I've never heard of. He's actually a stuntman in real life. Um, <laughs> He's great. He does a perfect, he has a spot on Bruce it's Lee. so in very good Bruce Lee. <laughs> um, looks just like him, talks just like him. It's very, very uncanny. But yeah, so that Bruce Lee was fictional, so maybe he could have lost a fight to Cliff Booth. And also was an asshole. Yeah, an arrogant guy who said he could beat Muhammad Ali in a fight. <laughs> I don't think Bruce Lee ever said that. I don't think that's true. He said, isn't Cassius Clay Muhammad Ali's? Yeah. yeah. He says yeah. that. They said if you got in the ring with Cassius Clay, he's like, I'd kill him. No, I meant the real life. Oh yeah, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that version did. Yeah, That yeah, version yeah. said that. But do we, um, do we think Bruce Lee could beat Muhammad Ali in a fight? No. Oh, God. No. <laughs> Marcus, it's time for you to weigh in. I, I love my man Bruce, but... But Muhammad no. Ali's like one of the best fighters of all time. So. <laughs> yeah, and he's got so, a lot of muscle on, uh, on yeah. Bruce. <laughs> I mean, these days, uh, Bruce Lee would lose because he's dead. Yeah, um, of course. But yes. <laughs> even Muhammad Ali and his Parkinson's-ridden body could probably beat a dead man. Um... But yeah, so what do we what do you think about this movie? What do you think? Before we go to final thoughts, of course, I do one more thing. Of course, some fun facts I've learned while reading while we've been talking. Okay, uh, we talked this earlier, but the guy who plays Charles Manson, Damon Harriman, who I think most people probably recognize him from Justified, yes. he played Dewey Crow. He also plays Charles Manson on Mindhunter. Yep. So he wow. is getting very specifically typecast. <laughs> Another person 
uh, the woman that we called, uh, I think she was the red-haired girl at the end yes. in, in the home invasion, uh, plays Patricia Krenwinkle. She also plays Krenwinkle on the show Aquarius. Wow. Other things I found out, uh, Harley Quinn Smith is in this movie yes, as one of the cult she's members. One of the cult members. I noticed her, probably one of the first cult members I actually noticed mm-hmm. was Harley Quinn Smith. Um, Clue Gulager, who is a huge name, if you know anything about, like, oh, like, the Westerns of this era, Clue Gulager was a fucking, uh, built, a bit, not a bit character, a character actor on tons of those movies, and he's in here as the old guy who is at the bookstore. Oh, nice. Um, and then, another thing is, remember that drug, the, the, the hippie drug dealer who sells Brad Pitt the, the acid cigarette? Yes, in a hilarious You want to guess who that is? No, I can't guess. That is Perla Haney Jardine, Jardine, not sure, who played uh, Uma Thurman's daughter in Kill Bill Volume 2. Wow. Grown the fuck up now. Quentin Tarantino's just getting all the hits in. Quentin Tarantino was in the movie himself, uh, in voice only, as the director of the Red Apple Cigarettes ad, which is pretty interesting. Oh, that's great. But if you want to see some crazy stuff, go, sure, go, go check out the Wikipedia page for the, uh, the actors. It gives you a little information on all of them. It is insane, the, the, the amount of detail. And, and crazy people, really, that are, are maybe not huge stars, but are like well-known enough that I I mean, I you've, got, their names. you've got Bruce Dern, Luke Perry, and... Um, is it James Remar? And, yeah, James Remar. And they're all playing, like, extras, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what the hell? You got Scoot McNary, who Scoot I know from uh, True Detective season three. He's great. Yes. Clifton Collins Jr. Yeah. Uh, from Westworld, um, who has basically one line in this movie. Yeah. Everybody besides like DiCaprio and Pitt have like one line. <laughs> it's crazy. Essentially. Um, also, the uh, Francesca was played by Lorenza Itzo Itzo, who I recognize finally now because she was in that movie Knock Knock. She was. And she used to be married to Eli Roth. Of course. Who was in Inglorious Bastards. Yes. So and as a director. It's all fucking connected. Oh yeah, for sure. Alright. So yes. Let's we'll go we'll go around real quick. We'll do our, our final thoughts. And we'll do a rating system. We'll do um what should we write this one out of? Um How about uh acid dip cigarettes? Yeah. Alright, <laughs> out of five acid dip cigarettes. We will start we're gonna end with Marcus, so let's start Fuck. with Smith. <laughs> Smith, you first. Oh, me, me first. Okay. Um, I really enjoyed this movie. I mean, I thought that it was uh, a, a, an interesting... Uh, like I said, Tarantino's attention to detail to, to capture a moment of history reminded me a lot of, uh, of uh, Zodiac, um, a, yes. a, a great period piece film um, about sort of some, some similar subject matter. I thought that uh, I th- I thought that it was a treat to look at. Uh, I like I say for pretty much all Tarantino movies, maybe a bit too long. Uh, probably could have cut down a couple of scenes to, to make it a little bit shorter. Uh, but at the end, I'm not complaining because I enjoyed watching it, and that fucking swerve at the end was worth sitting in the seat the entire time to see for sure. All right, how many acid dip cigarettes? I would give. The, I mean, I'm going to give it an eight out of ten. Okay, so that'll be four acid dip cigarettes out of five. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm fucked up. Cool. So, I'm fucked up. Smith was smoking all his acid dip cigarettes. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm kidding. I'll go next. So, I did really enjoy this movie. The first time I saw it, I told you, I saw it at 10 o'clock at night in a small theater, and 
I was sleepy and I was sleep deprived. I hadn't slept for the, like a couple of days before. And I watched it and I was like, I don't even know what that movie was. I had no idea. I was so out of my mind. Um, I, obviously, I, I did have some opinions at that point. But I went and saw it again uh, in IMAX, you fucking losers. And boo. Boo. Shut up. You know you would have saw it in IMAX too. Yeah. Um, so, and I, that time, I fucking loved it. Also, and maybe. Maybe this is only me. It probably is. But the second time I saw it, that movie fucking moved. I thought I was only watching it for an hour when they got back from Italy. And I was like, oh, wait, that's already like the end of the movie. There's only like 30 minutes left. I was like, okay, I can dig this. Um, so, yeah, I love that. Um, I thought the ending was cool, um, despite any controversy. And, yeah, I love it. I think Tarantino, I mean, even when he's not making the best movies, he's making very interesting movies. And for that, I'm gonna I'm gonna join the handholding club and give this uh, four acid dip cigarettes out of five. Hmm. Ben, yeah, uh, I really like this movie. Um, I definitely I definitely share the same uh, sentiments as Smith in that at times it did feel a little too long. Uh, I feel like that's been a problem with Tarantino's movies for his last couple of films because the last three movies he's made they've all been over two hours and forty five minutes long. I mean, like, the only one I really had a problem with that in was Hateful Late. I felt like that one could have been cut way down. Django Unchained, didn't feel it at all. I enjoyed it all the way through. Yeah, this one... This movie's a banger. Yeah. This one, uh, most of the time, I was I was running with it, but there would be some slow times where I would really start to feel it. Maybe if you could have cut down on some of the driving scenes, because about, I'd say roughly 30% of this movie is Brad Pitt driving around Los Angeles. I will say this. <laughs> I think the driving scenes are important to Tarantino because of how much work they put into making it look like 1960s California. True, true. So he yeah. was like, he was like, God damn it, we're going to have him drive half the movie. Yeah. <laughs> we can see all this work we did. Look at my sets. Look at them. Uh, but yeah, uh, it was a little long, but ultimately, I think this is the most I've ever liked Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt in any movie. Uh, they had tremendous chemistry together. I can't believe that. I think this is the first time they've ever shared a screen with each other, which is incredible. Like getting these two giant A-list actors to come together and they just bounce off each other flawlessly. They're great. I absolutely love these characters. This is one of the only films this year where I actually remember a lot of the main characters' names after I leave. Like, as much as I love us, I don't remember their names right now. But I will always remember Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth. The ending completely, completely took me out of left guard, but after seeing Inglorious Bastards, I should have I should have been prepared for it. But I feel like he made the better decision going this way instead of actually depicting the Manson family mur uh, murders, which would have upset a lot of people. So I feel like this is the right way to go. And overall, uh, I really liked it. You know what? No, I loved it. I loved this movie. Uh, I'm going to give it 4.5 uh, acid dip cigarettes out of 5. Whoa, Ben smoked <laughs> half of one of his acid dip cigarettes. It's like, oh, and now it's like uh, four is enough. I don't need this other one. And now we are on to Markalis Barkalis, and he is gonna strange names. He's gonna tell us a man who had no knowledge of the Manson murders, or it's maybe this might, this might be the first movie he's ever seen. Um, <laughs> what did you think? What is your acid dip cigarette score? Well, first off, there there are many enjoyable <laughs> moments in this movie, like. Uh, DiCaprio uh, is describing his book to that girl. <laughs> yes. I, I really enjoyed that. Fuck. Great scene. That was, that was fantastic. 
But, like, as someone who had no idea what the heck was going on, had no context, and obviously, thank you, fellas, for <laughs> filling yes, the gaps for me. Of course. <laughs> um, overall, it's it's a solid movie. Um, I, uh, I couldn't fully appreciate it because, you know, I was watching it on a <coughs> uh, underhanded means, but, you know... So I not IMAX. <laughs> yes, not IMAX. Regular theater quality. The exact opposite. <laughs> A suboptimal definition. But um, <laughs> I enjoyed it. I will give it four. Four acid dip cigarettes. Wow. So even the non-Manson knowers give it four acid dip cigarettes. We're all in the same ballpark here. It's great. So, this is one thing we're gonna. I just wanted to do to close, kind of close this out, because um, pretty soon we're gonna switch what our bonus episodes are gonna be about. And I just wanted to real quick, and we don't all participate. Whoever wants to can. But I wanted to, let's do a, a ranking of Quentin Tarantino's movies. Personally, Ooh. he's made nine movies. Um, they are Kill Bill Volume One. Oh, I sh- I'll give them in chronological order: Reservoir Dogs. Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, Glorious Bastards, Django Unchained, Hateful Eight, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, so I already I have my list prepared, so I'll start us off. Just to I'll give you guys some time to think if you need to. So uh, in the ninth place, I have Hateful Eight. Um, I wanted to put it at 8th for the, uh, the memes, but I couldn't. <laughs> um, it's not by any means a bad movie. I saw this with Ben. Uh, I think the day it came out yeah. in 2015. Um, not long after Star Wars came out, I saw it with Ben. And it's not by any means a bad movie. And I think it's the its main problem is while I was watching it, I actually really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really good movie when I was watching it. And I was like, I like this. These characters are fun. This moment is fun. But I think as soon as I left the theater, I forgot everything about the movie. Pretty, and I don't think I could honestly tell you anything about it right now. Yeah, pretty much. Like the thing about that movie is, while I do like it, it's the only Tarantino movie I've been the most bored in. Yeah, I do want to check out the Netflix version where they cut it into four episodes of a show, which sounds kind of cool. Mm-hmm. So I'll check that out. Number eight, I have Jackie Brown, and I, this is the one I had not seen. I just watched it the other day, um, and it's a good movie. It's it's actually a really good movie. And it's, it's a lot different than Tarantino's other movies. He has a lot of people, because he likes to reuse a lot of people. He doesn't really do that with this movie. I mean, Pam Greer, Robert Forrester, Michael Keaton, um, a lot of these people, Chris Tucker, a lot of them never get reused. And it's just, he, he I think he made that movie intentionally. Oh, and Robert De Niro is in this movie. Uh, De Niro is a guy who doesn't seem like a Tarantino star and plays a very non-De Niro character. Um... It's a good movie, but it's just not up there with some of these classics he's made. Above that, this is the toss-up for me. Right above that, I have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, number seven, which we just watched. Once again, I love this movie. It's a four out of five for me. Um, we just talked about it. No need to review it. Up, right above that, I have Django Unchained. These two could go back and forth. Uh, Django is a fun toss-up to Spaghetti Westerns, and Jamie Foxx is very fun in it, and I think the performances are great. DiCaprio gives his first... Uh, um, perform his uh, first uh, t- Tarantino performance here, and it's amazing. And not much else can be said. Great movie. Right above that, I have his first movie, Reservoir Dogs, a heist movie that takes place after the heist. That's all you need to know. It's a really fun, cool movie. 
Um, I consider the Kill Bill movies to be one movie, so I have Kill Bill right above that. I'm a sucker for violence and fighting and weird assassin samurai bullshit in these kinds of movies, and it was great. All-star cast, great movies, great marathon to do. Number, and this is where my con- maybe the controversial thing comes in. Number two for me is Pulp Fiction. And yes, Pulp Fiction is a near-perfect movie. It is hard to dispute its value to Hollywood, to the movie industry in general, and how much it changed the way we view these kinds of movies. It's incredible. Every storyline is great. The broken chronology is crazy. It's super rewarding on rewatches to pin everything up in your mind. It's great. And at number one, I have Inglorious Bastards. This movie slaps. It fucks. It's great. It honks. It's incredible. <laughs> um, performances, top to bottom, are absolutely on par. He does the sub- subversive things. There are, there are several, probably at least four or five scenes in this movie that I'll, I haven't forgotten since the day I watched it. And there's just, from, from the beginning to the ending, I just am so wrapped up in this movie that I can't give it anything less than number one. So... Anybody else wants to indulge me on this, go right ahead. I can do it. Okay. Don't worry. All right. I will only rank ones that I've seen, so I've not seen Hateful Eight, so I cannot include it in my rankings. Okay. Um, at the bottom, I'm going to put Jackie Brown. Okay. Uh, not because I don't like it, because I have watched it in maybe 12 years. Okay. So I'm not, I don't remember much about it. Um, above that, uh, at number, I guess, what will be seven, I suppose? Yes. I'm going to go ahead and uh, put um, Reservoir Dogs. Okay. Uh, great film. Fantastic. But when we're talking about Tarantino, we got a lot of good movies to get through here. Um, I think above that, I'm going to put, uh, let's see here. I'll, I'm going to put um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, great film. Just, just review, don't hope someone reviewing it. Fantastic. But um, that's where it goes, I think. It's it's, it's a perfectly good film that, that Tarantino made, but... Uh, is his late is his later work, and I mean it's still fantastic. Dude has not lost much, in my opinion. Uh, there, I'll put uh, Django Unchained. Uh, just a fucking great movie. Just a fun watch. You know, you want to see a good take on a western. Um, that's a great. That's a great choice. Um, next, I will put. Uh, I'm actually going to rank these separately. I'm going to put Kill Bill Volume Two below Volume One. Uh, I love, like, I like Volume One more. Volume Two is great. Get me wrong. But volume One is some insane shit, which I, I just love. It. it has it has more of my favorite action yeah. scenes in it. I think like the fight in the very beginning against Rita Green is incredible. The fight against Crazy Eighty Eight and uh, all that is so good. Yeah, I think if you were to actually write them separately, I would put one above two. But yeah. Um, but next, I will put um, Inglorious Bastards. Uh, like Seth said, unforgettable film. I the, the opening bit with the with, with the, the French guy and 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 Hans Landa and they're fucking having a conversation uh, while the Jews hide under the floorboards. It, I will never forget that scene. That's that'll stick with me forever. Uh, pro- probably one of, one of my favorite scenes ever put to film. Um, overall, just a just a great alt history you know take on World War Two. Where again, I think at the end where Hitler's getting fucking filled full of bullets, it's just it's just fucking Tarantino being like, if I had it my way, this is how it would have gone. Um, and then I'll put um, I'll say Death Proof. Um, wow, people, you're pulling Death. People Proof sleep on Death Proof. He doesn't. He does I not put it in his his nine canonical films. So this is a bonus. 
I I love Death Proof. I will watch it any fucking time because <laughs> it, ha- it combines two of my favorite things, which are uh, Tarantino co- uh, dialogue and cool ass cars doing cool shit. Uh, great stunt work by Zoe Bell and the rest of the fucking cast. It's fantastic all around. Just, this is a watchable ass movie right here. Uh, pro- pro- probably his most easily accessible film, uh, just from a, 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 a you know it's it's not it's not very complicated yeah. essentially. It does like a whole lot of effort. Um, and then I will say, uh, I think that only leaves me with uh, Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Uh, to put it at the top, I'm going to say, y'all, Pulp Fiction. Uh, I remember Pulp Fiction when I was a kid. It, it was on Stars one morning before I went to school, like 6 a.m., and I happened to flip over to the scene where Christopher Walken yes. is talking to the young Bruce Willis's character, and I'm just drinking some fucking some water or some shit, and then he talks about how he hid the watch in his ass. <laughs> And I almost choked to death. <laughs> and then I, I went, uh, I got the fucking my, my dad's uh, Pulp Fiction uh, DVD and watched it, and it's 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 just a fantastic film. Ben, it's e- easily my favorite. Ben, can you do a Christopher Walken impression? Uh, the clock. It's in, I, no, I can't. I can't do it. Okay. I'm the. I'm, he tried. He was I, there. I'm the one. Got a fever. I'm the one. <laughs> I got a fever. Uh, I'm the only motherfucker on this planet who can't do a Christopher Walken impression. It makes me so mad. Oh, well, hold on, hold on. Let's let's hear Marcus's though. Oh, Marcus. Shit, shit. Um, uh, uh, I got a fever. Marcus, that's Steve McQueen. <laughs> shit. Yeah, what are you doing right now? <laughs> Wait, though, is it white Steve McQueen or black Steve McQueen? <laughs> yes, that's that's black Steve McQueen though. <laughs> okay, okay. And so oh. Ben, if you want to do your Tarantino rankings, feel free. Uh, I don't know if I can really give a, a full, complete list because I haven't seen every single Tarantino movie. The ones I'm missing are uh, I haven't seen. I haven't. What, what, I'm trying to remember which ones. I haven't seen. You've seen Jackie Brown and Kill Bill Volume Two. Yeah, I, somehow. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I haven't seen Volume Two, but so I don't have a definitive list for you. But I can tell you like my personal favorites. Like in no well no particular order except Pulp Fiction number one. I know that's a very that that that's a very uh, cliche answer, but if it wasn't that fantastic of a movie, it wouldn't be such a cliche yeah. answer. I mean, it's a good fucking movie. You can't take it away from it in any way, shape, or form. It really it really is like it did help change the cultural landscape in terms of movies. It, it spawned thousands of copycat films. Basically, people wanted to be like Tarantino. And Pulp Fiction was the start of this. You, you you just can't beat that original. So my personal favorites include like Pulp Fiction and Glorious Bastards, Kill Bill Volume One, and and Django. Django is way up there for me. I know I know uh, a lot of people don't really. Uh, I wouldn't say not a lot of people like it, but there is like a whole controversy surrounding it, considering how, how many times like the N word is used in it. But th- this has always been one of my personal favorites. It's probably one of the most Rewatchable Tarantino films, in my opinion. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, I don't have a, I don't have a full extensive list. And also, breaking news: in the midst of this conversation, I have switched my rankings for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Reservoir Dogs. I put Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Ooh. above Reservoir Dogs. Wow. I was searching in my memory bank because I've done that. So that's the definitive list, and <laughs> that's our review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Well, hold on, the Demarcus. Oh, I forgot Marcus. I didn't. Hurtful. 
Yes, I've seen all Hollywood? of them except Jackie Brown. <laughs> wow. Okay. You say Hateful Eight? Yes. Wow, nobody saw that. Okay, cool. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, Smith didn't see it. What, really? No. You didn't see it? I just said, I said that. I said that. Oh, I didn't oh. see it. Well, I'll, I'll make this quick since <laughs> three other people have already reviewed it. Go ahead. So, Jackie Brown's nine because I haven't seen it. Okay. Eight, <laughs> hateful Eight for the meme. <laughs> okay. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood... Reservoir Dogs, Grindhouse. Okay. Well, Death Proof, but oh, yeah. Death Proof. Is it? Wasn't it a double feature? So yeah, but he he only ones, did he Death did Proof. He didn't do uh, Planet Terror. That was Robert Rodriguez. Okay. All right. Um, Kill Bill, Pulp Fiction, and Glorious Bastards. Django. Django Unchained at number one. On top. I love it's, it. Yes. Oh, it's beautiful. I, That's I a great movie. How could you not love racist Samuel Jackson? I mean, <laughs> obviously he's a terrible character, but in the best ways possible. He's a live-action yes. Uncle Ruckus in that movie, basically. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. Also, how could you not love fucking uh, DiCaprio's character? Right? Right? Where he goes absolutely batshit. actually cuts his hand apart while exactly. filming. And keeps this... going. He keeps going. <laughs> that man. Oh, that man deserves all the Oscars. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that I've not skipped Marcus, that's our review of Simon Hollywood. That's our rankings of Quentin Tarantino movies. Thank you for joining us on this bonus episode. Um, I'm leading this one, so I'll go first. Um, If you want to hear from me, you can follow me on Letterboxd, which is a movie review thing. Um, You can follow me at um, Kanazaris, K-Y-N-E-R... No, I spelled my own name wrong. K-Y-N-A-Z-E-R-A-S um, on Letterboxd. And that's me. Uh, I'm Smith. You can find me on Twitter at MCSurf. And I do this podcast. Uh, ben, I'm, or Marcus. Oh, I'm Marcus. I, you can find me on Instagram at Mr. Breaches. I also do the art for this podcast. Uh, I am Ben. You can find me on Twitter at the Ben Powell. I also recently joined Letterboxd and got an account, so you can follow me there at the Ben Powell. Uh, also, I host a radio uh, wrestling podcast called Southern Smackdown. The podcast, me and my co-host Danny Waugh, we discuss the weekly happenings in the world of professional wrestling. This weekend, this week's episode should be interesting because SummerSlam was this past Sunday, so we will be yeah. recapping that. So if you like professional wrestling, I don't know how much uh, wrestling fans and socialist uh, communist or whoever listens to your podcast normally, I don't know how much of that audience really culminates, but surprising overlap, actually. (laughs) So if you not a joke. Oh, wow. (laughs) So if you're a fan of professional wrestling, come and check me out. We're available on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, the Google Play Store and Stitcher. And Ben also made our theme song. Mm hmm. So, yeah, shout outs to him. We don't do any sign offs for our bonus episodes, I don't think. Nope. So, yeah, that's been our review. Hope you guys have a nice uh, evening. We're out. Good- out. Goodbye. Peace.